You're listening to the Poema Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope that this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to see God in a real way. For more information about Poema Church, visit poemachurch.ca. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Um, you know, I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that that couple now, um, they don't, um, they're no longer a part of this local uh, body here at this church because they've actually moved to Florida with a group to help start a second extension campus of Poema. How good is God? Who knows who you invite this Christmas? What God has in store for their life? It's impossible for us to know. And so uh, invite people and uh, expect and see what God will do. Um, if you don't know who I am, my name is uh, uh, Josh. I'm um, one of the pastor, youth pastors here at uh, Poema with my amazing wife who is in with the kids now, um, teaching them how to love God, how to um, know what God is calling them to do, how to know uh, and hear God's voice in their life. And uh, it's an honor to be a part of the team here. Um, my, my, my message today, my sermon, uh, my talk, whatever you want to call it, uh, has a title. I very rarely title my messages because I don't know why, I just don't. Um, but this one's called Faith, Prayer, and You. So if you have uh, a, a notepad or a digital device or whatever, um, just just jot that down, um, faith, prayer, and you. Because we are in a series called Great Expectations. And sometimes it's hard to know what to expect in a lot of different categories in life, but um, I think God has uh, something for us to tap into those expectations. And we're gonna kind of go through that together. Um, just a little note on who I am as a person. I love Jesus. I genuinely believe that he is the son of God, that he uh, lived on earth, he was crucified, and he rose again. And the reason why I believe that is um, in history, there are many uh, people who uh, were a part of a church. And uh, after Jesus rose again, he um, basically started a brand new community. And these people were living in a time where uh, the, the government did not like that. And the, and the Roman government came in and they were killing Christians all over the place, left and right. And uh, it's still happening today on our earth. And um, these, these believers would not betray the idea that Jesus was God and that he came back to life. And the reason why they wouldn't is because they saw it happen. They were like, I saw this guy do what he did and he is God. And they were like, if you don't say Caesar is God, we're gonna kill you. And they were like, go for it. And so history is filled with books of people that are killed for something. So that is seemingly on the surface, like a guy raised from the dead, what is going on? But how many people in this room would, in some horrific cases, watch their family be killed and still say something as radical as somebody came back from the dead? You'd have to be pretty convinced. So there's also inside the biblical text, so that was kind of outside the biblical narrative, but a part of history. Inside the biblical text, a writer named Paul in 1 Corinthians, um, he basically says there was about 500 eyewitnesses to Jesus' uh, resurrection. Uh, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. 
it's an open invite, and he names some of them by name. One of them was James, which is Jesus's brother. And he says, go talk to him. Go find him in such and such city and talk to him about what he saw. So there's plenty of evidence to point to the fact that Jesus is who he said he was in history and in the biblical narrative. So what's interesting is that thought, that very idea is the beginning of faith. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that, but I'm gonna pray. God, thank you so much for this time together. Um, We love you and we submit our hearts to you. God, speak to us. God, move me out of the way and say what you want to be said today. We love you. And Jesus, be with the Thai cats today. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Oscar Wee Wee. Uh, so we're going to go to uh, a chapter uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's a book called Hebrews, and uh, the chapter is chapter 11. So if you have a, a digital Bible, pull, pull your phone out. It's okay to have your phone in church, just as long as you're on your Bible app. Just kidding. Um, but... <laughs> just, just if you want to read along, um, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we're going to start right at verse 1. So in the, in the translation that I have, uh, or that I'm going to read uh, first from, excuse me, it says something interesting. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what's going on there? seems pretty interesting, but it's also, let's slow down and point out a few of the words. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction are things that kind of happen in our, in our minds. They're kind of things that happen on the inside of who we are. But what a lot of scholars agree on is that this other ch- version of this scripture is more what the author is going for. If we can throw it up on the screen here. Now, faith is the substance or reality of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not just a concept that, that happens on the inside. It's, it's a substance. It's a reality of evidence it's not just this idea that we get in our brain and kind of like create huge churches or all that sort of, it's, it's an actual reality. It's an actual walking out of something. I'll prove it to you. You were, you were saying, I believe you anyways. But um, I like to prove things. You'll, you'll figure that out by the end. So let's talk about what faith is not. Faith is not something that you just have to muster up. Faith is not just like, you know, pulling up your bootstraps. Do people still say that? Faith is not going to church. Faith is not memorizing the Bible. Faith is not being a good person. Faith is a substance, a reality. Faith is not just clamping your jaw down and just believing really, really, really hard that something great's gonna happen. That's not what faith is, according to the Bible. So now that we know what faith is not, let's start to navigate what faith is. Pastor Rachel spoke a few weeks ago. If you're here, it was really great. She basically laid out this idea that 
she laid out this idea that there's groundwork when it comes to faith. There's things that we have to do. There's things that we have to commit ourselves to. And that is a brilliant, brilliant um, way of explaining what faith is, faith in our actions. And what the word faith is here in this Hebrew uh, book here is uh, the book itself is, okay, let's just have some fun with the Bible. Okay, Hebrews was written to people who were leaving the Jewish uh, faith and they became Christians and they wanted to go back. But it was written in a time where Greek was the primary language. So a book called Hebrews written to Jewish people was written in Greek. Little confusing, so that's why the Bible seems like it doesn't make any sense. But we're gonna go through this together. So the word faith there is a word pistis. And that word in Greek means to persuade or convince. Persuading. Faith is persuasive. So that's my first kind of seb point. Faith is persuasive and it's also relational. So the persuasiveness. We're going to talk about a hero of faith in, in, in uh, Hebrews 11. If you're familiar with the biblical text, you'll know, oh yeah, that's the heroes of faith chapter. If you don't, now you know. This is basically, this chapter is like a, kind of like a countdown or a recounting of like the most faithful people in the Jewish, through the Jewish lens. And it's incredible and it's got a myriad of amazing different types of people that all have a say in the faith. But, so this chapter kind of goes through all these different people. So one of the guys, his name is Abraham. Has anybody heard that name before? Abraham, okay, you're fairly familiar. I've heard the name Abraham. He had many sons, many sons had him. So, um, Abraham is, is uh, a, a fascinating character, but when you think of him, you think of somebody quite um, like stoic, you know, kind of like maybe an old man who's seen some things, okay? He has a lot of wisdom. He probably has a really deep voice. I can get away with that right now because I have a cold. Um, you think of this kind of like untouchable sort of person, like a wise wizard, like Gandalf or something. That's the sort of thought that people have about who Abraham is. That's the first kind of thing that you think about. You're like, Abraham, oh, Wow. Abraham is asked by God to do something radical. You're like, oh, well, obviously he loves God a lot. God says, I want you to build an altar and I want you to sacrifice your only son, Isaac. Now in that ancient time, that actually isn't as crazy as it sounds now. That was child uh, uh, sacrifice was very common. So it's a crazy time and, and Abraham goes, okay, I'm gonna do it. Okay, so everyone in this room, especially if you're a parent, you're like, what is this guy's deal? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, says something that I think gives you a preview as to why he would go through with this. Now, if you haven't read the story, spoiler alert, Isaac is saved, he isn't sacrificed, it's all good. So, so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. If you're there, you can read it. Uh, but I'll, I will read it out loud here. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. I want to point out that second word there, reasoned. He used his mind to know, my God is so powerful, he can raise Isaac back from the dead. So, I can go through with this and it will still end up 
Good. Now, here's the other question. Was there any guarantee that Isaac was going to come back from the dead? No. There's no guarantee. But Abraham reasoned, no. I think I know God well enough to know that even if I do go through with this, he's so powerful, he could raise Isaac back from the dead. There might be a situation that you're in um, that, that seems like it's like gone. God can raise things back. It may not be in the way that you wanted it to be or think it might be, but I know that he can do it. How do I know it? Oh, the evidence. I'm persuaded to know that by the evidence of the things that I've seen. Abraham also had that relationship with God to know that he could bring back Isaac. That takes a little bit of work and it takes a little bit of faith to begin that relationship with God. Okay, so we're gonna do an exercise. Is there a stool behind me? No, no, no. no. there is no stool behind me, this is correct? Okay, there's no stool behind me. But I feel like there's a stool behind me. Should I just like sit down? Would that be a smart thing to do? If I just like lean back and sit down, would I? Why do I have reason to believe that there's no stool behind me? Because you're telling me that there's no stool behind me. Is there a stool behind me now? There's still no stool behind me. Is there a stool behind me now? Well, how do I know that? I can't see a stool. You're telling me. You're telling me that there's a stool. So now I have reason to believe based off of your commitment to me and your relationship to me that there's a stool behind me. Okay, so let's guide me to the stool. Is it back this way? Back, back, back. Keep going, keep going. Stop, stop. Which way, this way? This way. Left, left. Okay, here we go. Left. More. Warmer, okay, that's good. Warmer, stop. Stop here. Sit down. No, okay. Back up, back up. How much farther? Am I almost there? Oh, oh, a little bit of this way? Okay, okay, here we go. Oh. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. What happened there? That was a transfer of trust. That was a transfer that I'm going to trust in what you are saying is reality. This here. This Bible, this text is pointing towards people that have gone through what you've gone through, seen what you've seen, and are telling you over and over to keep trusting in God, keep trusting in the community, keep trusting in who he says that he is. Why? Because it's worked. That song, Faithful, that we sang, um, I won't get into the details, but it has to do with the fact that something very dramatic happened to somebody in their life. And that, story, that song is a story born out of pain, confusion. And the whole song is about God's faithfulness. 
So where does faith start? Where does faith start? Well, in Romans, this guy named Paul, he writes a verse and he talks a little bit about that. So Romans 10, 17. If you want to flip over there, you can. If not, you can just trust me. You don't have to though. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. So right now we have heard a reasonable defense as to why faith matters, why faith is real. And now you can start your journey of faith right in your seat, right now. You don't have to wait for this sermon to be over. You don't have to wait for this day to be over. You can start your journey of faith right now because you've heard something that gives you evidence to believe in the words of what Christ has to say. Now, here's another little thing that I want to bring up. Just before that, Paul says, for the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In an ancient text saying there is no difference between this race or that race is highly unusual and highly radical. We are used to a world where people from different cultures all live together. And that's beautiful and it's amazing and it's important. But you have to remember what that scripture is saying is that it doesn't matter who you are. You can believe That is what the scripture is telling us. It doesn't matter where you come from, your background, where you're starting your journey. If you call on God, he will answer you. Okay, so faith, section two, prayer. Okay, so when you say prayer, you can can kind of feel the invisible wave of guilt. (laughs) Kind of just like, I should probably do that more. Oh, that sounds important. <laughs> Sorry, I'm bad cold. <clears throat> it's okay. It's okay. I, I still struggle to take time to pray, meditate, and do the things that God wants us to do. And the reason why he wants us to do them is because it draws us closer to him. But we're going to talk a little bit about prayer. And for me, the best person to lay out what prayer is, is probably Jesus. So Jesus, who we've already discussed, was a man in history, existed, and was God's son. So this is his um, guide. Okay, this is Jesus' guide to prayer. Matthew 6, uh, verse 5. Also, just a fun fact, um, when the Bible was written, it didn't have chapters and verses and all that stuff. We put that in later to make sermons a lot easier to navigate. Uh, it's just for reflection and study. But so basically, um, yeah, chapter six, verse five. So you know where you're going if you're, re- if you're reading along. So this is Jesus. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father sees in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. Some of your Bibles might say pagans. Okay, let's just pause there. Pagan just means not Jewish. It doesn't mean like, some sort of crazy goat worshiping, whatever. It just means not Jewish. That's what is the point. 
Because we think pagan in our modern world, but pagan in the ancient world is different. For they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this. And here comes the famous lines. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, let's be honest. The Lord's prayer has probably become stale and redundant at this point. I'm not trying to be irreverent of what it is. I'm just trying to be honest. For the most part, we just skim straight through that. Or when we read it, we read it really like reflectively and like, oh, so beautiful. And that's important. But I think there's something else going on there and we'll get into that. But Jesus also firstly lays out how not to pray. Odd, right? So Jesus's whole point here is like, I don't want you to pray like the religious religious hypocrites. He's saying to you, I don't want you to just pretend. I don't want you to go in public and make a big show of this. I don't want this to just become like some sort of religious system. He talks about going into a closed room with a closed door and talking to a father. That's a much more relational inference. He's inferencing that God is like a father, not like a boss. Okay. He then goes on to say, don't pray like the pagans. So in that ancient time, a lot of, uh, especially if you read something like uh, Homer's Odyssey or whatever, there's prayers that are thrown up to the gods. And a lot of them are super long, and super repetitive, and they say the same thing, and there's no real clear point, and it's just kind of like redundant rhetoric for like a really long time. And Jesus is saying, God already knows what you need, so ask him. Just get to the point. He's intentionally saying, I don't want you to pray like the religious elite on both sides of the spectrum. I don't want you to just try to be spiritually elite. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is a relational conversation. And for that time, he's offending people on purpose. (laughs) So there's some debate over whether Jesus used the word uh, Abba, Father. You may have heard that, or Abba. But actually, in the Jewish language, uh, as best I understand, is the word is Abba-ba. So the idea of saying Abba, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, is basically like saying... um, like a child trying to say dad when they're like really young. They're basically, he basically implies that you're approaching God like, uh, dad, um, you're so great and I love you and I wanna do what your kingdom has for me. But like referencing God as dad back then is like, no, you can't do that. That was bad. Jesus implies that that's actually not bad. It's exactly what he wants you to do. Okay, let's move on to the first half of the prayer. The first half of the prayer is dominated by words like your, your kingdom, you. It shows that we put God in his priority as first place. It shows that first off, when we approach him, remind yourself that this is about his kingdom. This is about God's will for your life. This is about something bigger than yourself. But the second part, and this is where it gets fun, Jesus uses language like us, an hour. He actually never says me. Give me my daily bread. 
He could have, but he didn't. Why? Because prayer is about God and the broader community of of believers and disciples and people that are following Jesus. The whole point of prayer is not to be like, God, I need this. It's God, you are in first place. Give us what we need. Give us our daily bread. Give us as a collective, as a whole, as a family, as a body, God, give us what we need. I think it's time for us to get our prayers off of us and start to create expectations for what God has for others. Start to create in our minds and in our hearts a narrative of God, give us what we need, us what we need, not me what I need. That's the part of that that we skip over. We just insert the meanness of it. It's, it's automatic. It's human. We're trying to look out for number one, but we should be looking out for number one, God, number two, everybody else, number three, me. Like a father. Father takes care of his kids. He's taking care of them first, typically. So we're going to keep going. Prayer. There's another prayer. Some of you who are um, good Bible people, you might already know where I'm going with this. Some of you are like, well, there's actually a different prayer, and we're going to talk about that. So, Oh, and before I do that, in the last little while, as I was kind of prepping this message and I was thinking about it, I've actually tried a little bit, not, I need to get better, at saying the Lord's Prayer just during my day at work. And it reminds me of why I even am. <laughs> it just makes me slow down and realize, oh yeah, God, forgive me my mistakes as I forgive those people at my work who transgress against me or aggress or passively aggress. (laughs) Oh yeah, God, your grace was so good for me. Let me let go of everybody else. Prayer number two, Matthew 7, verse 7. Jesus talking now. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, Oburn, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him. Okay, let's just talk about something really awkward and I'll just like embrace it full on. Um, We probably have a bad relationship with our father. So we struggle with this concept because our dad probably, I'm not saying everybody, some of us had amazing fathers. My dad had his seasons. If you know my story, he was an alcoholic for many, many years. Uh, he came and he gave his life to God and things turned around for him and, and it, it was a, a great second half of the story. But the first half of the story was not the greatest. Um, but we kind of approach God like we're walking on some sort of like tightrope, like balancing with like a grimace on our face because that's probably like how we approached our fathers. 
they came home from work, they had a bad day, you know, we're all adults for the most part in here. We know what it's like to have a crappy day. Even if you go to school, you know what it's like to have a crappy day. When you get home, you just want to like, I want, I just want like cookies and cartoons and just like leave me alone. <laughs> and so, you know, our parents come home from work and we're like, Dad, Dad, can my friend sleep over? And you, <laughs> that's the way we've borne our relationship to asking God for things. And so that's why it's such a struggle, I think, to even start a conversation about asking God for things at all. Because we're just like, ah, I don't, I don't know. Jesus also says, God already knows what you want, so ask. Our natural inclination is to go, God already knows what I want, so why do I need to ask? Jesus draws the complete opposite conclusion. He says, no, you should ask. He already knows what you want, ask. He already knows what you need, ask. Our posture towards God is very resistant. But according to this scripture, God's posture towards us is actually very, he wants to give. He wants to give good things to us. He wants to give the bread. He wants to give the fish. He wants to give the things that we need. That is the posture that Jesus explains here in prayer. He says, yeah, ask God, go for it. Not Get all your ducks in a row, not be like super awesome first and then go, no, just go ask. He, again, Jesus, he's so brilliant and classic preacher line. He's so brilliant, but he's so subtle too. It's the implication is that God wants to give us good things. But here's the deal. I think sometimes we have to ask the right questions. And I'm not trying to say God's a puzzle up there that we have to kind of figure out. But I'll give you an example. I have nephews and they're uh, hilarious and awesome. And the youngest one, he's uh, four years old and he's full of personality uh, and I love him so much. And uh, his name's Luke. And uh, he, he would probably come along the lines of asking for things from my, from my brother. And when he was younger, it was just kind of like this, that. It was like, yes, no. It, it was a very simple thing. But he's gotten a little bit older now. He can kind of articulate himself. He has older brothers, so, you know, he's learning quickly. And um, I almost promise you at some point he would ask for something that he has no business using. So at this age, he would probably be like, Dad, can I play with the kitchen knife? <laughs> okay, but he would be like, but I really, really want it. I really do. It would be so much fun. I could play with it. I could swing it around. It's, it's not that bad, but it's, you get the picture. He, he would definitely ask for something that he couldn't handle yet. Would a good father give him that? No. A good father would not give a four-year-old a knife. But if Luke said, Dad, can I have some bread? Yeah, of course. Of course. His, my brother's posture towards his son is, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. You can have some bread. Dad, can I have fish? I don't know if he likes fish. Maybe he does. But my brother would be like, yeah, sure, I'll get you some fish and come back with a snake. That's psychotic. But you got to ask the right questions. There are seasons in our life, and this is what happens. We ask for things. Maybe we see a glimpse of who God's calling us to be. My example is I feel as though God's called me to speak and to teach and to help people understand the confusing world of what the Bible is. I'm really passionate about it. 
and it was many, many years ago where uh, one of our pastors said, you know, I think you have a gift. And, you know, now is probably about 12 years ago when, when that was said to me. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then I knew that there was process and there was learning, but definitely way before I was ready, I was like, okay, God, I'm ready. I know what I need to know and I'm ready to go. And God was like, no, I'm not giving you the kitchen knife. You're going to slice every person in the auditorium. I wasn't ready. Are you asking God for things that you're not ready to handle? They're, they're good things. My gifting is a good thing. I can say that confidently. And if you have a problem, you think it's arrogant, we can talk about it later. My point is, is God knew when it was time for me to be who I'm called to be. He knew when it was time for me to have that part of who I am come to fruition. When I asked for it, I wasn't ready. So he wasn't going to give it to me. Thank goodness. I probably would have said some really, really dumb stuff. And I probably still will make mistakes. Are we asking for things that we're not ready to handle yet? Maybe. Maybe we are. The idea of the two um, scriptures are tied by one word that I think is kind of, we, we slide rasp right by, and it's the word bread. In both prayers, Jesus says, give us bread. In another part of the Bible, Jesus goes on this journey and he's fasting and uh, the enemy comes up and he tempts um, Jesus to eat some bread. And let's just be honest, who's been tempted by carbs? Am I right? (laughs) Tell the truth and shame the devil. And Jesus' reply is, I'm not sustained by that. I'm sustained by God. Bread in that time is a symbolic image of, uh, of provision. Do you think maybe God is kind of playing on both things here? Do you think maybe Jesus' language here is on purpose? He's saying, yes, ask for the things that you need to physically sustain you, but also be reminded to ask for the things that you need to sustain you spiritually, which is just more of God. So God, we ask for our daily bread of more of you. One last point I want to make here, and I think this is um, interesting. Jesus' disciples who he's talking to about prayer are tax collectors. They are, um, some of them are former prostitutes. Some of them are um, affluent uh, women and people in society, um, fishermen, just normal people, everyday type of people. One group of people that he spoke to were called zealots. Fun history lesson for two seconds. Zealots hated the Roman government. They wanted nothing to do with it. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government. So he has a group of people that probably have a lot in common to fight about, but Jesus unites them. The point being is this, these people were not spiritually, spiritually elite. Prayer is not for the spiritual elite. These concepts, faith, prayer, they seem really big. Probably when I said them, you were like, boring, but they're for you. They're for me. They're for every single person in this room. I'll prove it to you about faith. I love this part. Hold on. Just buckle your seatbelts. We're about to land the plane. Okay. 
in Hebrews, it's talking about Moses, Joseph, Abraham, Noah. If you don't know who those people are, you can tell by my posture. They're like grandiose type people. But then the writer of Hebrews, who actually is never named, and I think he's never named or she, because there was women very involved with the ministry at the time, they, they never write down who wrote Hebrews. And I have a sneaky suspicion it's because of this very parallel. Check this out. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.31. If you're following along, look it up. They're talking about all these top 10 of faith. You know, Michael Jordan, LeBron, Moses, Abraham. It's like a top 10 conversation. And the writer of Hebrews goes, oh yeah, and also by faith, the prostitute Rahab welcomed spies into her home and she was not killed with those who were disobedient. The writer says, what more should I say? And he goes on to list David and Samson and Samuel, huge major players in the Old Testament. But if you just skip right, the prostitute Rahab, if you don't know what a prostitute is, they are paid to sleep over at somebody's house. It's scandalous to put Abraham right beside Rahab. Slow down and think about that. Abraham is the father of Judaism. Probably what people would consider the most faithful and most religious person to have ever lived. And right beside them is Rahab. Not only was she just a prostitute, she ran the brothel. So let's just say she probably didn't have the most sparkling reputation. Why is the writer of Hebrews doing this? He's trying to set you up to know, in part, that faith is not just for the spiritual elite. Abraham started an entire religious belief and it's lasted thousands of years and affected millions of people. Rahab hid two people in her house, kind of for selfish ambition. She's like, you guys are probably gonna destroy the city. You can hide with me, but when you do, just uh, don't kill me. And they're like, agreed, sounds good. This is my point. No matter your ethnic background, no matter your reputation, no matter your education, no matter your family history, no matter your past, no matter what you think that you've done or for all the reasons that you're going to count yourself out, what is God asking you to do? That is the key. That is the substance or the reality of what our faith is. So no matter where you're at in life, economic status, None of that stuff. Just remember that whatever God is prompting you to do, that little thing in your heart, just start doing it. Maybe, it's, maybe it is come to church. Just start. Use that reality and evidence to start doing something. Start doing what God is calling you to do. Rahab stuck her neck out to save these guys. So I'm not saying it's going to be easy. 
But some of you are like, you know what? I have a bad reputation anyways. I don't have anything to lose. Maybe that was her mentality. I ain't got nothing to lose. I ain't got nothing to lose. I feel like it's only fitting that we end in prayer. Is that okay? I already prayed for the Thai cats, so I probably won't bring that up, but let's just close our eyes. And not for any kind of religious reason or systematic reason. This is just to kind of start to just block out the noise, block out the bills, the drama, the disappointment, the hurt, the pain, the real life that you're going through this day, this minute, this week, whatever you're going through. And let's just pray. And I, I kind of reworked the Lord's prayer a little bit, so I hope you're not offended by that. But let's just engage what God has for us. Our Father in heaven, above all creation, time, and circumstance. Hallowed be your name, your holy name and your holy ways. May your kingdom come, your way of life, grace, your rule, your reign of purity and justice, God. Your will, your will for our lives and who you're calling us to be, God. Be it done on earth as it is in heaven. Be mirrored on earth in real time as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us the community what we need both physically and spiritually, God, sustain us. And forgive us our debts. Straight up, God, we ask you to forgive our sins. As a collective, we ask that you forgive our debts. And with faith and expectancy, we know that you have forgiven us. And as we forgive our debtors, we as a community reply to your grace towards us by choosing to forgive those who have sinned against us. And lastly, God, lead us away from temptation, but lead us to the peace that you have for us. And God, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the corrupt mindsets that are lurking inside our own hearts. God, as we all sit here today in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, give us what we need to do next to begin our journey of faith with you. Help us not to come to you with a scared child mentality, but give us the grace and the wisdom to know what to ask for from you, God. And we humbly submit that you know when we're asking for bread, and when we're not. So God, we submit our hearts together as a collective, as a church, as a family, and as a community to guide us to where we need to go next, individually and corporately. And lastly, God, we love you. And we thank you for your grace and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope that this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to see God in a real way. For more information about Poema Church, visit poemachurch.ca.